Welcome to episode 40 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are continuing our troubleshooting craft series with expanding. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also going to have to forgive me as I am getting over a summer cold. So, uh, unless you're into that sort of sexy husky voice, which mm-hmm. is not really, <laughs> um, I do apologize. I'm all kind of congested and stuffed up. So this, this might be kind of an interesting podcast to listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just woke up from a nap 15 minutes ago. So <laughs> we're doing, this is the weekend edition of pub crawl. <laughs> Yeah, Kelly and I usually uh, podcast during the week um, in the evening, but I was, as you might tell, dying, so I had to push it off until I was not dying anymore. Anyway, so, expanding. Mm -hmm. I will admit that this is something that I'm not quite as familiar with, as I have the complete opposite problem. I usually include way too much. Mm Mm-hmm. So this may also be interesting to listen to for that reason, as neither Kelly and I may have useful advice to give. But let's kind of go through hypothetical situations. So from an editorial point, maybe not from a writing standpoint, because it's probably easier to do it that way. So if you were to get a manuscript in, and one of the comments was that it felt thin in terms of characterization, what would you suggest the author do? I think that, you know, when we talk about expansion, when we talk about books that seem thin, that, that when the book comes across your desk and it, it just seems a little bare bones and you want to flesh it out more. Um, one of the things that you want to do is, you know, add in scenes or add in, um, usually, usually you don't need to add something in that doesn't already exist in the manuscript. Usually we're talking about something that is already there, but that isn't developed well enough yet. So we're trying to flesh something out. We're not necessarily trying to introduce an entirely new thing, which I think might be even more difficult. (laughs) So this is these are characters or plot lines that are present in your existing draft but that don't feel fully developed yet and you want to go through and make sure that you can add things to kind of beef up that plot or character throughout the manuscript you're not going to want to you're going to want to sprinkle it throughout the whole thing it's not going to be as simple as just adding you know one little piece in the middle or in the beginning, you're going to want to make sure that you have an even hand in distributing that across your manuscript. When Kelly and I say a manuscript is thin, we don't actually necessarily mean word count. Although Mm -hmm. that is kind of the easiest way to gauge whether or not your writing is developed, depending on what category and genre you write for. For example, if you were... Uh, you know, writing a YA novel, generally word counts in YA can vary, um, like 60,000 to 80,000 for kind of contemporary YA, um, and then kind of 80,000 to 100,000 on the higher end for more fantasy or speculative YA. But if you're writing a draft and it's a fantasy YA and it's coming in at like 45,000 words, that's kind of a sign that something isn't working. But of course, you could have you know a, wor- a manuscript that's like 120,000 words long and still be undeveloped in terms of characterization, world building, um, plot. So I guess we can we can kind of break this down into different elements that need expansion. So we talk about character. I think that that's often what people hear is that the character needs to be expanded or character relationships need to be developed more. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, the other one would be another one would be world building. 
this isn't just for fantasy or science fiction. This is everything. I would argue that any novel, regardless of whether or not it's speculative, needs to have a fully realized and developed world. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess the last part that feels undeveloped would be a plot. But I feel like if you fixed fix the other two... Or if you develop the other two, world building and character, then plot would kind of follow. It would develop organically from that. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about... Actually, let's talk about world building first. I do like world building. That is, that is something that I enjoy doing. But when a world feels undeveloped or underdeveloped, what are elements that you think are missing or lacking from a manuscript when you feel that? This is always hard for me because I feel like um, it's really easy for me to know if the world building is good or bad and less easy for me to break it down further than that. It's just one of those things that's like I know it when I see it. <laughs> I know it's good or I know it's bad. Um, but I think that your world wants to feel, you know, whether it is a contemporary book set in a suburb, you know, in the United States, or if it's a fantasy with a completely made up universe, whichever one it is, you want the world in your book to feel like it extends beyond our characters Mm -hmm. and beyond the immediate story that we're being told. Yeah. And so if you don't get that sense when you're reading the book as though this is a real place that has other things going on in it beyond just this one story. Yeah. For me, a world, a world feels underdeveloped if there's a lack of specificity. So even, even let's say you have a book set in contemporary Brooklyn Each city and time and place has a specific character. If you've lived in Brooklyn or if you know Brooklyn at all, there are these quirks and neighborhoods and specific details of the types of people who live there, the way they speak. All of that are details that add depth and texture to your world because you know, let's say you write a contemporary novel and it's set in, what's a, what's a neighborhood that I know well? It's set in Park Slope and you have, you know, Park Slope has a specific architecture. It has these beautiful brownstones for the most part. It has specific types of stores and shops. Um, And if you write a book set in Park Slope, but you know, somebody lives in, like, a ranch house, or, you know, they go shopping at Vaughn's, or, you know, that's not specific to Brooklyn. It doesn't have the character of that neighborhood in Brooklyn, because neighborhoods in New York are very distinct and specific. So, specificity is definitely the first thing, because, you know, the easiest example is if you're creating a high fantasy universe, and or even a dystopian, we'll go with dystopian, and and the bat, and the government is just the government. You know, it doesn't have, you don't have any details about what kind of government it is, whether or not it was once a democracy, what kind of democracy, was it parliamentary, was it a democratic republic like the U.S., was it once a monarchy, how did it, how did the government come to be, and why is it just called the government with a capital G? Or if you're talking about fantasy and there's different fantasy races and they call themselves, like, the warriors. <laughs> yeah, capital letter, capital letter world building is not ever no. great. Um, yeah, it, it just, it, because that at that point it starts to feel like sports teams. <laughs> You know, like really just, you know, you could have set up these teams and now they're 
playing against each other in a specific way, and it just doesn't feel organic. So when world building feels thin, it really, to me, is it's, it's a lack of specificity, a lack of details that give things character. And details, you can choose the details, but, you know, you want a complete sensory experience of the world. So you want smells. You want, what does, what does the place smell like? You want um, sounds, like what does it sound like? And when you think, when you have to sit and think about this, when you even when you talk about the way a place sounds, you have to think about what's creating the sounds there. Is it a forest? Is it, you know, what time of year is it? What kind of animals live there? What sort of noises would they make? This is all sensory details that you have to sort of think about and pull them into your manuscript. Um, you know, so that's, that's really the thing about world building. And this is sort of going off a little bit in a tangential direction, but world building is just that thinking about the details and the why of the details, like why are these details there? You know, the, the Mm -hmm. food that this particular culture eats, you know, where are they getting their spices from is, you know, where, you know, so that means that they have trade with other countries or, you know, where are they getting this from? Where are they farming that? Like it, it explains a lot without you actually having to tell the reader we are in this time and place, like explicitly telling the reader. Uh So the sensory details gives you a real sense of kind of complete, completeness, I guess, to a world. Right. And this is a thing too, where if you are setting your book in a real place, in a real city that exists, you either do your research. If it's not a place where you yourself have spent a significant amount of time, because if somebody wrote a book that was set in the suburbs of Boston or in Boston itself, which is where I grew up, and they had never actually been there, I would know that they'd never actually been there because you'd look at some pictures and you'd read some stuff online and you'd just decide, you know, oh, okay, I know, you know, I've watched Goodwill Hunting, so I know what it's like to live in the, you know, suburbs of Boston or in, in Massachusetts. And so, you know, that's a place where you really want to do some research because it will be really apparent to other people that you are faking Yeah, it. I'm the same way about books in L.A., <laughs> that I actually don't like books set in LA pretty much at all. I think they get a lot of people who either either haven't lived there or understand LA just they kind of pick the wrong reasons to set a book there, if that makes sense. But you know the there are definite regional and cultural differences to places. Okay, so here's an example. Last night I was writing book two, and I didn't have time to make myself dinner, so my partner, Mark, uh, made me spinach stromboli. I had never heard of this in my life. I had never, I'd never eaten it, and I've never seen it. And stromboli is essentially kind of a, I guess you would call it like a a type of calzone almost, because it's, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's basically pastry dough filled with stuff <laughs> and kind of baked. The northeast of the United States, which is where Mark is from, he's from New Jersey, there's a lot of Italian mm-hmm. food there, and specifically kind of northeast American Italian food, which is kind of different from the Italian food that I grew up with out in California. So a lot of Italian foods I just have never heard of, never eaten, because they're not common to where I am. So... And that's, a, that's an actual regional difference that, you know, those are specific details that come up that would come up in your writing, you know, when you're talking about food. And we're both from the same country even. So, you know, it, it's little things like that, that that can detract from verisimilitude, I guess, if you get them, if you get those details wrong. So... Um, Stromboli was delicious, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Stromboli always is. Um, I think so that that's kind of the piece we have about world building. And those are some ways to add specificity to, or to flesh Uh out the world that you live in. 
basically it's just sitting and sitting and thinking through cause and effect really you know if if a certain world part of the world was settled by this group of people then what kind of foods would would that group of people eat you know and how does that affect things so it's it's cause and effect really so Mm-hmm. All right, so then we said our piece about world building. Why don't we move on to characterization? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you can get this comment that your character isn't developed enough and you need to add more. I think you can get that just about, you know, your protagonist or, you know, one of your other main characters in your story solely on their own that, you know, it's just not well developed enough. But most often what you will hear is that a specific relationship isn't yeah. developed enough between two characters. And that's the kind of thing that you have to work on. And there are, I think, generally, two ways in which you can solve that problem, depending on um, which one is more relevant to your manuscript. One of the problems when there are when you have a relationship that's undeveloped is that one character is really well-developed and the other one is a blank yeah. slate of cardboard. <laughs> and so the relationship just isn't going anywhere because one is a real person and the other one just isn't. And in that case, you just have to go in and you have to make the other half of the couple as compelling and interesting as your protagonist is, or vice versa. Sometimes it's the love interest that's compelling and the protagonist that isn't. (laughs) One of the other, you know, if you've got a couple and one person is more interesting than the other, then that's a problem. And you have to go back in and just like you would, whether it's your main character or not, you have to give that person all of the details that make them alive and compelling and interesting. Um, you know, just the way that you do when you're, when you're crafting your protagonist. The other thing that sometimes happens is maybe you already have two developed characters and they're both, you know, fine in their own right, but something about the relationship just isn't working. And that's usually that you've gone from zero to 60 and you have just told us that these people are in love or these people are best friends or these people are father and son or whatever the relationship is between the two characters. You've just told us this and you want us to take it on faith and invest a lot in that, but you haven't shown us anything. We've had no scenes that show either how this relationship has been pre-established before the events of the story or how this relationship is growing over the course of the story. And that's when you need to add in actual scenes between the two characters that exploit and reveal and further their interactions so that the audience can get a better sense of who they are and why they are connected in whichever way they are connected. Yeah. And in addition to possibly needing to add scenes, I think deepening the scenes that are already there would involve Mm -hmm. things like sharpening the dialogue. For example, let's say you have two best friends, Um, but the only reason these two best friends are talking are about something that has to move the plot forward. We don't get anything about this relationship. We don't understand how, you know, are they kind of a joking sort of friendship? What sort of inside jokes do they have? Why would why would they be talking to each other if it's only to further the plot? Mm-hmm. Because, and that's not really how humans work in real life. When we talk to each other, we talk to each other for reasons. You know, that's not necessarily, oh, you need to do this. It's, you know, we we talk to people, you need to do this because I want you to, or you need to do this because it's something that you should do, and I want you to do it because I care about you. Those Mm -hmm. things will illuminate the kind of relationship our two characters have. Um, Characterization is, for me where I start. So for me, that's kind of what I think of first is how these characters interact and why, which is probably why plot is my weakest thing (laughs) because I just follow these characters and what they do. And then I'm like, wait, yeah, you have to be over here. I need you to do this. Please come over here. (laughs) Um, you were going to say something and then I cut you off. 
No, I was just going to say that my my favorite example of that as an an example of how you're talking about something on one level, but it has a deeper meaning. Because I think I think that's true of all human interaction um, in real life, and is a great sign of really masterful fiction when characters are talking in that same way that people really do. And the the easiest way that I think that I can explain this so that other people get it is that. Um, when you're talking about money, when people talk about money, like my husband and I have a household budget and we sit down and we, you know, assign all of our money to different categories. We're talking about the dollars that we earn and how we're going to spend them. So when we have those conversations, we're having a functional conversation, like the quote unquote plot conversation that's going to move things forward about our actual budget. But at the same time, what we're really talking about on a deeper level are our priorities and our values Mm -hmm. and the things that we you know, care most about and whether or not we want to save our money because it's important to us to have security or whether we want to spend our money now because we're, you know, impulsive and we want instant gratification or whatever else. But like that is a very simple example of ways that you're talking about things on two levels, you know, that there's this surface level of this is what we're talking about or how we're going to pay our bills this month, but it's this deeper level of how we want to live our lives. And you kind of want to think about that when you're writing your scenes is, you know, this is my plot level of this conversation, but what is the emotional level of this conversation? Pete, humans talk to each other for emotional reasons. And if you don't talk to somebody for an emotional, with, with emotion, not necessarily for emotional reasons only, but with emotion, then you don't actually have a relationship with that person. The only people to whom I kind of speak in that sort of utilitarian, hey, you dropped your pen or hey, this are basically uh-huh. strangers or people I don't actually have a relationship with. You know, for example, coworkers at the day job, you know, we're friendly, but we don't really talk about our personal lives. And therefore, the majority of our interactions is just about the job and related to the job. Mm-hmm. But people with whom that you are, with whom you're close or not even close, but you have a, a sort of either familiar relationship or an antagonistic relationship with, there's always emotion that colors how you react to them or how you relate to them. So, you know, this is a, a you know, a really easy example, but you have two girls who are friends. Um, but that friendship is also, is, is based on shared interests, but also a slight edge of competitiveness. You know, that's a real relationship. So that would color how they relate to each other. If you mm-hmm. have, you know, um, lovers who are, you know, they are best friends first or they, you know, had the kind of a love to hate sort of relationship that colors how they react to each other and, and what they want from each other. That's the other thing. When you have characters talking to each other, it's a two way street, right? One character wants something and the other character wants something else, or maybe it's the same thing, but how they approach that same thing is different or should be different because they're two different people. Mm-hmm. And your character, if your character is having, you know, if you took the exact same conversation, the content, like, let's say the conversation is, you know, how to plan your road trip from point A to point B. If you're having that same conversation between two best friends or between a child and a parent or between, you know, two enemies who are thrown together on a road trip for reasons unknown, the content of the conversation will be the same. We're still planning how to get from place A to place B, but the conversation will be completely different depending on who you're having it with. And so keep that in mind too, that these are unique people with rich interior lives that are relating to their conversation partner in a completely different way than they would if they were speaking to someone else. So when you talk about So that's really kind of character relationships and how to expand character relationships. But if you get the criticism that so-and-so feels like kind of a cardboard cutout, we'll say, let's let's do the love interest, because that's often a common complaint that people get or that people see. One party of a romantic relationship is bland. So how would you go about fixing that? I think 
It's hard when that person is not your protagonist because, of course, you're not going to spend as much time with them. You you have the luxury with your protagonist to introduce things like their full backstory and, you know, all of these other things because we're spending the most time with them. It's their story and it's important for us to know all that. When it's a secondary character like a love interest, you don't have that much real estate on the page. Nobody is going to sit around while you start at the beginning and tell the backstory of, you know, all of your secondary characters. So you have to find ways to weave that information in, in a way that is believable and effective, but still, you know, doesn't risk taking over your entire book. Um, I think a lot of that can be done in descriptions of the way your character behaves like in the dialogue as well but also the way that they move the way they react to things when other people are talking or when other people are doing things um you know they they are if you think of you know your book is like playing out on a movie screen and the love interest isn't the one taking the action right now isn't the one speaking but they're still in the shot and they're having reactions and they're having you know they are involved on the periphery um i think that's a good way to develop a character that isn't your protagonist is to to focus on their reactions their mannerisms their ways of speaking you know the things that they find funny the things that they find you know the things that make them angry all of those things so that you can you can see the range of their emotions and experiences in an effective way without having to totally you know include every last thing about their biographical history I think in the, book. the reactions or the descriptions of their physicality is actually a good way to develop mm-hmm. characterization for everyone including your protagonist yeah because you know, the whole adage, adage, is it adage or adage? adage? I think it's adage. I don't, know. I don't know. I've only ever seen it, so I've never actually heard it said. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the old saying, the actions speak louder than words, it's actually true. And, and sometimes what a character doesn't say says a lot more about that character. You know, for example, mm-hmm. in a, let's say that in a situation where there's um, an argument going on, and you have mm-hmm. your secondary character, you know, standing off to the side with the arm with their arms crossed, a scowl on their face as one thing, but they're you know, or they're standing off to the side idly picking their fingernails. That says another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're watching the proceedings with a glint in their eye that says yet another thing about that character. So I think physicality is a really good way to develop a character because if you just, if they just sort of show up and, and only do what's utilitarian, they move the plot forward, they declare their love or whatever, and it and it's not backed up by all these little specific things, that's what makes something feel undeveloped or shallow or flat. Mm-hmm. And... The the other thing, and specifically this happens, I think, more in portrayals of romantic relationships, is that when a character is not on page with your protagonist, you get the sense that they don't exist. Yeah, they just disappear. Because if everything that the love interest is saying and doing is centered all around the protagonist... And only the protagonist, you don't get a sense that they have a life. This is a little bit of a problem with PETA from The Hunger Games. Like, what is PETA's life outside of Katniss? Like, we're told a lot of these different things that he likes to paint. He's strong. Yeah, but even his... Like, his, from the minute, like, from his backstory, he's, like, loved her from the minute he yeah. ever saw her. But they've never interacted before. Like, they had the one interaction with the bread, but they they never talked in school. They never spent any time together socially. And so we're just left with this, like, he was obsessed with this girl for years, but never spoke to her or spent any time with her. And what did he do during all those years until now? It doesn't seem real. Yeah, so when... When the only thing that motivates your secondary characters is your protagonist, 
that's a problem. You know, they have to have their own desires and wants. And sometimes they'll be in alignment with your protagonist, but sometimes it's not. And then there's conflict in that way. If their desires are in fact in alignment with your protagonist, maybe their approaches to it are different. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I often see in, in romantic portrayals of romantic relationships is that the the love interest just shows up and just gives all of their love and attention and every, all the thoughts are only focused on their love interest. And then when they're not there, then you're kind of wondering like, what do they do? Do they just sort of go back into the closet of, you know, of love interests until they're needed again. And then you just take them out and they kind of wind them up and set them going again. Like what, what, what are their lives like outside? So that, that's, I mean, that's not just a problem with love interests. It's a problem with a lot of secondary characters, but I, I do tend to think of it in terms of the love interest because we often see that, you know, the, that, oh, you know, the cardboard love interest, you know, they're just a collection of good qualities, but not an actual person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. all those qualities are great on paper. You can check them off this, this, and this, and this, this is all great to have in a love interest, but how do they come together to form a person? So, do you have anything else to say about characterization or character relationships when we talk about expanding? No, I think that hits the nail on the head. I think, too, when we talk about expanding, too, um, it could be, you might need to add a lot, but it also might be, a little might be enough. You know, a couple of descriptions here and there might be plenty to fill in you know, what we're talking about and make things seem alive and believable and, and rich. And so don't immediately get overwhelmed. If you get that feedback from your editor, don't immediately get overwhelmed and think, oh my God, I have to, you know, add in tons more words. I mean, you may, if your word count is short, you might have to actually bulk it up with word count, but it usually won't take too much to make things seem believable. It won't take a lot of words necessarily, but it actually does take a lot of labor. <laughs> yeah. Writing, Writing is, is hard. hard. Why do we do it? Uh, I don't know. But it does take a lot of labor because you actually have to reassess every interaction your characters have. And in the case of world building, you have to reassess every instant that your character interacts with the world around them. So, you know, it. so you may, in the end, only add like 500 words to your manuscript, but it will probably require a lot of either changing things around, deleting scenes, you know, tweaking actions during conversations. That's a lot of work that doesn't necessarily pay off in a huge word count. Um, so let's move on to plot then. Generally, this is kind. This is a little bit different because I don't necessarily feel like there's. You, you often get comments about a plot being undeveloped. You kind of get or underdeveloped. You kind of get comments about this book is too quiet. Mm. So, what do you do to fix that? If a book is too quiet, and what does it mean when a book is too quiet? Well, when I think a book is too quiet, I think it means that there's not enough at stake. Mm. Because not a lot necessarily has to happen in a book for it to be compelling and interesting with a lot of things at stake. I think when something is too quiet, it often means that the characters feel complacent you know they don't want anything or the things that they do want to get resolved too easily or the complications or obstacles in the way are too simplistic because problems that need to be solved are often multifaceted like you have to figure out the logistics so let's say the plot obstacle is you have to defeat i don't know an evil sorcerer so then you have the problems of figuring out, one, how to defeat said evil sorcerer if you need more than one person. 
you know, if you need like a team and how does that team work together or, um, so like, you know, cause you kind of get up to the end of, and the climax and all you do is the, okay. So the example I'm going to give is actually from the historian by Elizabeth Kostova. I don't know. Have you read this Kelly? I have not. So the, this came out, I guess like 11 years ago now, God, you guys, I'm old. But this is essentially a vampire novel where this young, unnamed narrator comes across a mysterious folio with a dragon on it. And inside the folio, and and she shows it to her father, and he's like, that's weird. I I came across a folio like this in my youth. And so it's kind of this stacked and interlocking stories about this particular folio with the dragon on it and how it's connected to Vlad Dracul and whether or not Vlad Dracul is still alive and living as a vampire. It's a really interesting premise, actually. It's a really, really cool idea. This book is kind of a slog. (laughs) This This is a book that's absolutely over loaded with sensory detail. If you want travel porn, this book will deliver in spades. But there's nothing at stake because the majority of this book takes place in conversations with our unnamed protagonist and her father. And he is the one relaying the story to her. Therefore, there's nothing personal at stake for our protagonist. And mind you, this book is like a thousand pages long. So... Anyway, and there's really interesting things happening because there's the implication that when this folio with the dragon comes into your hands, and it's it, it always comes across mysteriously to people, it just shows up, that you're either marked for death or that you're somehow related to Dracula, either, you know, by circumstance or by blood, perhaps, um, and maybe that there's this other sort of society or force at work that's trying to keep the secret and hidden and trying to, you know, so there's like all this intrigue and danger, but the protagonist never feels it directly. And supposedly all of this leads up to a confrontation with Dracula at the end of the book. And I believe they dispatch Dracula with a gun. They just literally show up and shoot him. And that's it. That's how, that's how it ends. <laughs> So that's an example of something that, and in fact, the thing is, like, the character interactions are really interesting. The characterization is interesting. Our unnamed protagonist's mother is super fascinating, even though she's, like, never on page. Um, you know, and the relationship between her father and his, basically, his mentor, his academic mentor, is really interesting. So this, and, and obviously, the world is interesting, but the plot is just there. It doesn't build up to anything. It doesn't build up to a climax. So Mm. I think that's kind of the best example I can give of an underdeveloped plot is really when the stakes aren't there and you don't care. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, this book is really long, so it has a lot of words. So, but it's a lot of words where nothing furthers anything. And you just kind of get really interesting anecdotes about people and Dracula and the history of Dracula. I mean, like, all of this is really fascinating. This is the thing that's so frustrating to me about The Historian as a book, is that it's actually really interesting as a premise um, and as an idea that you're tracing Dracula, the real person of Vlad Tepes, and the literary figure of Dracula, how they intertwine, how they've affected literature and media and all that sort of stuff kind of throughout the years all of that is super interesting but that's not the book that she wrote mm-hmm. um, and I can't say anything because I mean this book was a huge huge bestseller back in the day but um, yeah <laughs> so I don't know can you think of any other examples like where the premise is great but the plot is quiet like the book I'm writing right now, you mean? Um, no. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> we have a section where we can talk about that stuff later on. 
Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of specific examples, but I think, I think short of any actual example, um, cause none is coming to mind at the moment, you know, one of the, one of the surest ways to make sure that your stakes are interesting enough and that people do get emotionally invest- invested is if the, if the stakes are both universal and personal for your characters. Like if there's, you know, if the world is ending, well, sure that affects everyone. So obviously those are big stakes, but you know, you'd be surprised how many world is ending books where I just kind of don't care because, Oh, the world is ending. Tra la la, you know? So it helps if there's, if the stakes have two sides, if it's a two-sided coin, if the world is ending, but also there's something personal at stake for your protagonist that makes it more urgent than, you know, just the impending doom of us all and, and more personal. And that way you can just latch onto it on multiple levels. Yeah. I mean, if we were to think of a thriller plot, you know, so your protagonist, there's physical danger, but that doesn't necessarily automatically make you care. You know, if, for example, mm-hmm. our protagonist is the target of a serial killer, what makes it personal is like, well, you're like, but why are they the target of the serial killer? You know, it's not just the fact that so the person is the target, it's why they're the target that makes stakes personal. And... The thing, the thing is, it's like in the historian, all of that is kind of explained to you why this is all should be all significant to your, our protagonist. But there's no sense of actual urgency because the way it's mm. relayed to our protagonist is that she and her father are apparently on a tour of Europe of all the wonderful restaurants of Eastern Europe. And her father doles out the story in bits and pieces and basically ends with like, so I'll finish the story tomorrow after we do this. So there's no actual sense of urgency, despite the fact there could and should be, that would make us care a lot more. Nothing actually happens to either of these characters until very close to the end of the book when the father disappears. And so now a protagonist is on her own. Mm-hmm. And then theoretically you think, okay, now now this is the moment where the protagonist steps up, and but that doesn't happen either. <laughs> and things just sort of fall into place for her. She doesn't actually have to do anything. She does not have to work for the climax of the story. So that that's kind of my bit about stakes. It is, I think, as I'd said before, that plot is really tied up in both world building and character stakes arise from characterization so you know if the character isn't flat is flat then the state you just kind of don't care you know the, the stakes aren't nearly as high so a lot of the plot problems of a quiet book can be fixed in that way so i don't know do we have any Closing thoughts on how to expand something? I think we've hit all my big ones. I guess the question I have then is, for people who are looking to fill out word count, like just pure Mm. words, but without making your book seem like it's bloated, because that's a hard line Mm. to walk, what would you suggest or what do you think somebody can do to kind of add words but not make it seem but not like baggage unnecessary baggage yeah I mean that's hard to diagnose without seeing the book itself because I think if you are telling a story that is appropriate to you know your audience and genre because all genres and target audiences have, you know, a general word count roundabouts, you know, a middle grade has a specific kind of target, you know, young adult, literary fiction, thrillers, you know, all this other stuff. They have kind of their, their genre aware 
targets to hit. And you should be familiar with those because as we've discussed in prior podcasts, you know, you should be doing your research and be familiar with the genre you're writing in and all of that. So, you know, I think that it's, it's really difficult to have a tight enough, you know, a a book where you come drastically under word count and yet if you were to add anything it would be bloated i feel like that that would be kind of difficult to do if you're really writing to your intended target with the right, right. you know kind of market um i think that you know a lot of ways to do it are my guess, without having a book in front of me and being able to like say, here's your exact problem based on what I've read, I think that probably what is happening at that point is that it's all a plot, that you're telling one story, your main story, through, and that there are no subplots or other things that are feeding into that main. And so I would probably suggest that you add an entire subplot that enhances and complements your main plot. Um, again, without having a book to diagnose the problems, that's, you know, tough to say, but that's probably that that's likely what I'm thinking is that if you've got a, a novel that, you know, is compact and too low on word count and you need to flesh it out, but that you can't really add anything to your main story. It's probably that your main story is all that you're mm-hmm. in. There is that. I think that's a good, a good way to diagnose it because there are definitely, pretty short novels that still feel whole and complete. So, you know, Mm -hmm. word count is really there as guidelines. You know, you don't necessarily have to adhere to them so strictly. As long as the work doesn't feel too long or too short. Because, Mm -hmm. for example, we'll, we'll start with Harry Potter. The earlier Harry Potter books are much shorter in word count than the later Harry Potter books. And I would say the first one is a pretty tight work of fiction. It's actually also over 100,000 words, which I didn't realize, but um, it is. Is it really? Um, But it, or not, it's not, sorry, it's not over 100,000 words. I think it's like 75,000 words, which is still much longer than a typical middle grade novel. What I was thinking of was actually The Golden Compass, which is over 100,000 words long, but it doesn't feel that way. Mm. It moves extremely quickly. So... You know, so the the book that I'm thinking about in the Harry Potter series is actually book five, Order of the Phoenix, which is the longest, I think, except maybe for Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. And one feels much more bloated than the other. Yeah. And there are things in book five that I think you could have cut or trimmed, but for the most part, that story has conflict and has tension that keeps building and despite the length of that book I remember when I first got it I read it in one sitting and then book Mm -hmm. seven interestingly the part that I thought thought was the most fraught and interesting in was the first half and then the second half Mm -hmm. was just kind of despite things happening at a really rapid clip just don't feel earned and feels kind of, and therefore yeah. you're left with the book with slightly uneven, not slightly, very uneven pacing and a lot of bloat where you're kind of the, the sort of tension that's built up in the first half doesn't really pay off in the second half. So then you're left wondering why did we spend all of this time camping in the forest and learning about Dumbledore's backstory? In the woods forever. <laughs> I actually like those scenes for the, for the character reasons that you that you kind of develop and talk about, but then you it, you spend most of that time really kind of just focusing on Dumbledore's backstory, and that doesn't really pay off except for kind of a throwaway gag. So, like I said, you have book five and book seven, and one feels much more like a complete novel, and the other one feels much more bloated, even though the word counts are actually pretty comparable. Um, so, yeah. I think I think that's it. If it feels too short or it feels too long, you know, diagnosing the actual word count is actually somewhat secondary to see to seeing whether or not there are 
other places of your manuscript are under, underdeveloped or overdeveloped or unnecessary, I guess, mm-hmm. in the case of being too long or bloated. Yeah. All right. So then what have you been reading? Have you been reading anything? Speaking of Harry Potter, <laughs> I read Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And I know that not everyone has read it yet, so I will make sure there are no major spoilers in my uh, thoughts. I won't reveal any major plot points or anything like that. Um, I was talking about this book in what I thought was a very discreet way on Twitter, and I still got my hand slapped. So so if you don't want any spoilers whatsoever about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, you can just, you know, fast forward a little bit (laughs) this part or skip it. Um, I read spoilers for this book months ago when they first started coming out from previews from the play. It's the only Harry Potter book I've ever intentionally been spoiled on. I was spoiled for... Hag- uh, not Haggard for Hedwig and Mad Eye Moody's death in the seventh book because I was on Live Journal scrolling before my book had arrived. Um, it's the only book I didn't get go to a midnight party for, and I got spoiled for that on Live Journal. Damn you, Live Journal! <laughs> um, so I've never intentionally spoiled myself for any of the other Harry Potter books, but I wanted to do it for this one because one, I have complicated feelings about Joe Rowling's extended um, playing in this universe. I I want her to stop. Um, and I know not everyone feels that way and that's fine. But so one, it was that two, it's that it is a play and that they are so very different mediums, you know, people who were expecting a novel and got a script, um, I'm sure were very disappointed. Oh yeah. There's articles about that. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just figured, you know what, I'm just going to read spoilers. Um, all the spoilers that I read were accurate. All of them happened in the book. I, do not love this book. I really, really, really don't like this book. I understand why the reviews of the play are so great, because I've heard that the performances are amazing. And if they can accomplish even a fraction of the magic that is detailed in the stage directions, then I can only imagine it must be breathtaking to see that live. There's so much magic in this play, detailed magic in the stage directions, casual magic, you know, not just big battles or big special effects stuff, but like casual everyday magic that's just happening constantly. And if they pull off even a tiny fraction of it on stage, I would 100% believe that the reviews are phenomenal. Plot-wise, it's a hot mess. It is... A very accomplished piece of fan fiction. I mean, if this was back <laughs> in 1998, I would have signed up to this Yahoo groups and awaited each installment of this fan fiction. Yep. Um, you know, it, and so in that sense, it's great. As canon, no, absolutely not. I 100% reject it. I, this is not. This is not Harry Potter. No. Mm-mm. Nope. Sorry. None of it. No. 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 Yeah. No. I have zero interest in in The Cursed Child. I mean, I will buy it and read it because mm-hmm. when it comes to Harry Potter anyway, I'm a bit of a completionist. Right. Um, I'm not really a completionist for pretty much any of the other book series. If I don't like something, I'll, I'll kind of drop it like a hot potato with absolutely no feelings of regret. But Harry Potter is a little bit different because it has been such an integral part of so much of my life. But I just... I... When I heard that she was going to write a play, I just didn't care. I didn't. Mm -hmm. To me, Harry's story was over. Oh, yeah. So I didn't need to read about anyone else. And and then, of course, Pottermore comes out. And I loved reading all of the stuff pertaining to Hogwarts. You know, like wand lore, the history of the castle, or things like that. Things that are very specific to Britain. But when she tried to expand her magical world beyond Britain is when I was just like, yeah, nope. Um, the Like I said before, the only piece of Harry Potter related fiction that she, that she could possibly write that would actually get me excited again would be a Marauder's Backstory. 
Mm. That's it. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about fantastic pieces of where to find them. I don't care about the cursed child. So that that's pretty much it. But for what I'm reading, I am reading uh, A Crown of Wishes by Roshni Chakshi. Mm-hmm. This will be out next year, so sorry about that, y'all. <laughs> but um, it's pretty great, and I think I think readers will really, really love it. So it has it has a book boyfriend of mine, so I'm pretty excited about it. So yeah. Now, what are we working on? Whew. So I have started actual work on my work in progress novel. No more just saying I'm going to work on it. I've actually written some words, not tons of words, but some. Um, there's been a snafu in getting my writer studio set up, so that won't be set up until later on in the month, unfortunately. But I have been writing anyway. I've got that time blocked out on the calendar. I'm supposed to send JJ my uh, chapter one by the end of this day. We'll see whether or not chapter one is finished by the end of this day. Um, although this conversation was productive for me. I took some notes while we were talking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, um, but yeah, it is, I think I mentioned last time that I'm doing it in the third person, which I am. Um, it is interesting but I think right now it is helping me get words on the page. I really was not getting anywhere in first person. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I am feeling cautiously optimistic about it. I, I haven't hit my stride yet. I don't know what I'm doing, but I am writing. And so that is good. Awesome. What about you? Book two. I... <laughs> Kelly, Kelly should know. I sent her like a panicked text message last night being like, I think I figured out why I can't write this book. I have no idea what it's about. I don't know what the characters want. I don't understand what the character journey is. Um, this is the problem with writing sequels. Is So I did mention that my editor had bought this, had bought Winter Song as a standalone. Mm-hmm. And we'd worked really hard to make it standalone. And I think we did you a pretty did good job. too good a job. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did a very good job. And um, so all the sort of emotional threads that were brought up in the first book have been resolved, essentially. So then I must necessarily find new conflicts and character journeys and for my characters. So like, yes, plot threads, like general world building questions were left unanswered. It wasn't necessarily tied up in a neat bow, but I felt the emotional arc was. So now I have to sort of sit and engineer something that feels organic and right to the characters to continue that story. And I think there is a story there. It's not that I Mm -hmm. don't think that there isn't another story because otherwise I wouldn't have sold the sequel. Particularly as it pertains to the relationship between Liesl and the Goblin King, there is something of an unfinished quality to that relationship, I think. But it's... Me trying to figure out, I had such a clear sense of what Liesl wanted in book one, but I have nothing for this one right now. I mean, I kind of do, but it's it's not as simple and direct as it was in book one. It's much more complicated and nuanced, which is terrible for my writing productivity anyway. So yeah, there's there's that, and I'm procrastinating from writing it by doing all sorts of things like cleaning my house from top to bottom. So that's what I'm working on. <laughs> Any off menu recommendations? Any off menu recommendations? Um, I do have one um, that I don't think I've talked about on the podcast before, and we ended up just watching it again today. So I have a two and a half year old daughter, as I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast before. And so a couple of weeks ago, we decided it was time for her to watch her first movie. And so we watched Cinderella, the Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, live action musical. I love Cinderella, that one. 
from the 90s with Brandy and Whitney Houston. I love that one. <laughs> I love that one. I had grown up on the uh, 1960s version of the same musical starring Leslie Ann Warren. When I, I grew up on that one and I loved it. And then I was talking to some of my friends and I was like, I think Penny's old enough and has the attention span where we could have like a special movie night, you know, and watch a movie. And, and what does it, what do we want it to be? And so I got lots of great suggestions and they were all, you know, wonderful. But, um, a friend of mine, Carrie suggested this Cinderella featuring Brandy and her daughter loves it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's the one that we're going to watch. So I bought the DVD I found it online and I bought it and we watched that and it is a huge hit and it, it holds up really well. And they did a lot of work to the book of the, you know, the dialogue in the musical. Um, they added in a lot of scenes and made the relationship, um, you know, work a little bit better and have the characters have more agency. Cinderella has a lot more agency now in this one than she did in the 1960s version. Um, and so it's really just wonderful. I mean, Brandy is delightful. All the performances are great. Um, it's just, it's really, really excellent. And so whether you have a kid or not, <laughs> I highly recommend watching the 90 something. It's like 97, I think. I think maybe? it's 97. Uh, version of Cinderella. Super, super great. I love that version. It is the only version that I grew up with or that I knew. Mm -hmm. I had not realized until I was a little bit older that uh, there was any other version mm -hmm. of, of Rogers and, Ham and Hammerstein Cinderella. Um, and I always liked this particular version because the prince is Asian and you like mm -hmm. never see that like anywhere. <laughs> um, it was a very multiculturally diverse because I, I think Whoopi Goldberg is the queen. Is the queen. Yep. And Victor Garber is the king. Right. Um, yeah. Every, it's, everyone is, it's, it's a very diverse cast. Um, and that was, you know, one of the main goals. I know Whitney Houston was um, a producer on it and she was originally going to be Cinderella until she was like, you know what? I'm too old to do this. And so she makes she the most Brandy excellent on. fairy godmother. Oh, she's so great. She's <laughs> so, good. so great. Um, you know, but that, that was one of her goals, I think, was to make sure that the cast was really diverse. And the performances are all excellent. Um, the man who plays the prince, um, Paolo, I can't remember Paolo his last name. Paolo Montalban, I think. Yes. He is excellent. He's just got a great, beautiful voice, and the acting is wonderful, and I thought he and Brandy had great chemistry, which a lot of times, sometimes in these, like, TV musicals, that's kind yeah. of an afterthought, um, but I, I just, I think the whole thing is really charming. I was really delighted by it. Yay! Yeah. What about you? I don't have anything. It's all <laughs> staring down the black hole of book two deadlines. <laughs> yeah, I hear ya. Um, yeah, literally nothing. I, <laughs> I come home from work and, uh, I had been dog sitting and I was, you know, I'd take my dog for a walk if I, you know, if it wasn't too hot and I would come and I would just work, work on book two or work on promotion for book one. So I don't have time for anything. I've got so many things piled up that I want to watch and partake of, like, Usually, Mark and I pick, like, a show to watch together. So we went through BoJack Horseman. We did Stranger Things. Um, but he has started a show without me because I was just like, I just can't. You, I was like, I, I can't. I don't have the time to spend on this. And I think he was watching the show called Love. It's a Netflix original. It's a Judd Apatow-produced sitcom. I did catch one or two episodes of it, and I really wasn't going to be my thing anyway. So I was like, yeah, you can go ahead and watch that because I don't care. <laughs> but I, I don't have time. I just... Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be pretty bleak yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of recommendations from here until my deadline passes. So. I'll try to pick up the slack. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be extending or continuing our troubleshooting craft series by talking about how to earn your that emotional payoff in a book. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. 
Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. And JJ and I were talking recently about reviews and about how wonderful our reviewers are. And all of you have such a way with words, which of course uh, we would expect nothing less if you're listening to this podcast. But I think we're going to start reading out bits of our favorite um, reviews for those that have been left to us because we've gotten some really great ones. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty great. It always makes us happy when we see new ones. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll probably start reading those maybe next week on the podcast. Yeah. So until then, if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick, on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. And remember, our query critique is still open, so go Mm -hmm. ahead and submit that to us with the subject line query critique. So thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.